The most exciting and by far the most important part of our Florida project, in fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World, will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future, where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. Mission to Mars, opening this summer. Please stand clear of the doors. Welcome, weary travelers. W, w Radio, your information station. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, and thanks for tuning in once again. This is show number 25 for the week of July 29th, 2007, and as always, I'm your host, Lou Mangello. We'll start off this week, as always, with a lot of news and views from Walt Disney World, as well as our trip to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill, which is going to include some rumor details about the Haunted Mansion refurb and upgrade, and so much more. Steve Barrett, author of the Hidden Mickey series of books, joins me on what will be a recurring segment on the show, where we'll talk about some new and interesting Hidden Mickeys, and ask for your help with some questionable ones as well. It's time to fire up the old Walt Disney World Wayback Machine, and this time, Jeff and I visit an opening day extinct attraction that so many of us still miss and have fond memories of, and that's Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Eric Hollister from Geomouse.com will announce the winner of this week's Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge, and Eric and Dan from MouseGuest.com join me as we talk about another one of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures. Because so much of why we do what we do is about helping others, I'm also going to introduce you to another friend of the show, Byron Hall, the fat Disney geek, who's going to tell you something about what he's doing to help make some magic for those that really need it. I'll also answer some of your emails on the air and make an announcement about the show. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. And now, a WDW Radio Show News and Views Report. Live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. There's a lot of news coming out of Walt Disney World this week, and we're going to go ahead and get started first with an email that was sent to me that I broke on the site earlier this week, and that's from Steve from Leesburg, Virginia. He heard that the All-Star Cafe at the Wide World of Sports was going to either close or convert to a counter-service restaurant. I spoke with somebody at the All-Star Cafe earlier the week, and they did confirm that it will be closing on September 20th and reopen as a counter-service venue. The restaurant is going to change its name and serve concession-style food with such uh, things as burgers, pretzels, hot dogs, etc., although the bar will likely remain. It's going to be run by Disney and should reopen the week after Thanksgiving. There's also going to be a change as to how you access the restaurant itself, as there will no longer be an entrance outside the venue, as you're now going to have to be inside the wide world of sports complex in order to gain entry. Now, it seems as though the current All-Star Cafe was really nothing more than a victim of its location, as being at the wide world of sports complex, it didn't really afford people the chance to go ahead and take a long sit-down kind of meal as they were going in between different sporting events. They just need to kind of go grab something quick. That's what they're going to accomplish with the new restaurant again that should open probably the week after Thanksgiving, just in time for the Pop Warner coming down in early December. Epcot fans can finally rejoice as your prayers and maybe your letters and posts online have finally been answered as Walt Disney World has confirmed that a rededication ceremony is being planned for the 25th anniversary of Epcot's opening on October 1st. 
Disney legends such as Marty Sklar will be in attendance, and formal ceremonies are going to take place at that time as well. Images of a number of special Epcot 25 pins that are going to be released that day have already made their way onto the internet. This official event is going to coincide with a number of fan gatherings set up by podcasters, bloggers, and the like, including one that's received formal approval from Disney and has almost 300 registered attendees. That one's called Celebration 25 and is being organized by a 16-year-old fan named Adam Roth from the site DreamFinder Forever. I'm personally so happy to see Epcot getting this recognition, as you already know, what a big proponent I've been for something like this going on. We've been celebrating here on the show in our own little kind of special way in our Epcot retrospective series, and Jeff Pepper way back when started his Acknowledge a Legacy, Restore the Dream series of posts, which kind of got this whole thing rolling. I'm going to put links and more information about these celebrations, as well as what some other fans and bloggers are doing online in this week's show notes over at WDWRadio.com. The golf carts over at Walt Disney World courses are now going to have installed GPS technology, which is going to give you real-time diagrams of every hole with the yardage from the cart to the flag stick for each green. It's also going to show you the layout of every hole and yardage you'll need for your next shot. The service is going to be complimentary with your cart rental and is available at Disney's Magnolia, Palm, Eagle Pines, and Osprey Ridge courses. I recently received a number of email questions about this next piece of news, and the answer came from Disney earlier this week, as Walt Disney World has pledged to go green and seek green certification for all of its resort hotels. Now, a green hotel is one that's certified as such by the Florida Green Lodging Association. And in order to get that certification, the hotel has to do things such as use non-toxic cleaners, use uh, other advanced efforts towards water and energy conservation, as well as other environmentally friendly uh, factors. Now, Disney is already considered the state's leader for having one such designation for six of its hotels already. But Disney officials have said that they do intend to get green certification for all 18 of its company-owned hotels at, on the Walt Disney World Resort property. Now, while the Earth Day 2008 target date is sought by many environmental groups, Disney would not formally commit to such a date certain. The rumored changes to the names and menus at some of Walt World Showcase's restaurants was confirmed by Disney earlier this week, as Epcot Vice President Jim McPhee said the park is seeking more interactive dining experiences, such as the Japanese teppanyaki style, as well as new interactivity with guests in some of the other pavilions, such as Italy and China, which are going to be changing next year. The Mexico Pavilion is also going to be getting the rumored tequila bar inside the pavilion and additional outdoor waterfront seating so visitors have more room to dine and watch illuminations. The UK restaurant may also be expanding their outdoor seating area on the waterfront as well. The Children's Miracle Network is going to be the title sponsor for the PGA Tour's last stop at the Walt Disney World Resort from 2007 to 2012. The Children's Miracle Network is the seventh and final tournament on the tour's new fall series, and it's going to be held from October 29th through November 4th of this year. Now, the Children's Miracle Network is a nonprofit group that does fundraising for hospitals throughout North America. After Funai Electronics pulled out as the title sponsor for the event, a new sponsor to step in its place was in serious question. From 1971 through 1984, there was no title sponsor, and then for 12 years, it was known as the Walt Disney World Oldsmobile Classic, followed by the National Car Rental Golf Classic from 98 through 2001. In 2002, the event had no sponsor, and Funai's four-year agreement ended in 2006. Between now and August 26th, Disney is running a contest for fans of the ABC soap operas. The grand prize is going to be a trip to ABC's Super Soap Weekend, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can enter. This year, you can win one of four grand prize VIP trips to be there with some of the hottest Disney stars. The grand prize is going to include round-trip airfare, 
three-day, two-night accommodations at a Walt Disney World resort, Magic Away base tickets, admission to Super Soap weekends, grand transportation, and the opportunity to ride Twilight Zone Tower of Terror with an actor during the Super Soap weekend events, Disney VIP tour guide service, Super Soap weekend merchandise as well. You could also win one of more than 50 first or second prizes, including a 2007 ABC t-shirt, autographed by stars from All My Children and other ABC soap operas, as well as an ABC Super Soap Weekend Survival Kit. Again, I'm going to put links up in the show notes where you can enter. As we discussed in our DSI Disney Scene Investigation of the American Adventure Pavilion, one of the most amazing collections of real-life Americana ever assembled, known as National Treasures, is coming to the Pavilion's gallery on September 26th, and details about what you may be able to see there have now been released. There, you're going to be able to see such items such as one of Abraham Lincoln's original stovepipes hats, which has never been publicly exhibited outside the Lincoln family home in Manchester, Vermont. The National Treasures collection is also going to be continually changed, so you're not going to know when you're going to see something new. Other items are going to include one of the microscopes that George Washington Carver used to help revolutionize American agriculture, items from the space program, war memorabilia, Thomas Edison's tinfoil cylinder, music players, and so much more. A Canadian news service commented this week on the new Canada film, which is coming into Epcot's World Showcase Canada Pavilion later on this month, and confirms that it will include help from some high-profile Canadians, such as Canadian Idol winner Eva Avila and comedian Martin Short. However, no confirmation has come directly from Disney itself. This past Friday, July 28th, Magic Kingdom tour guides dressed in their equestrian-style blue plaid costumes for the last time. The costume, which has been a symbol of the Magic Kingdom since its opening day, was originally designed for all Guest Relations cast members back in the early 1950s by Tom Pierce. It was later designated just for VIP tour guides at the Magic Kingdom. The new costumes, which were introduced Sunday, July 29th, were designed by Creative Costuming at Disney and are a bit more tailored and professional looking, yet they still maintain the integrity of the original design, including the same colors, steward plaid, and similar accessories. If anybody's actually seen these costumes on the cast members in and around the parks and has photographs, I'd love for you to send them over to Lou at WDWRadio.com so I can post them in the show notes. A couple of closings. Big Thunder Mountain Railroad is going to be closed for refurb from October 1st through October 24th, 2007. And over at the boardwalk, the Big River Grill is going to be closed for refurb from August 18th through September 1st. While they're closed, you can actually uh, get the same kind of dining over at the Atlantic Dance Hall. The next Mickey's Pin Trading Night on property is going to be on August 24th from 5 to 8 p.m. at Disney's Contemporary Resort, and I'll post all these closings and more information about them on the site at wdwradio.com in the show notes page. If you have any news that you want to share or discuss anything you've heard on the show, you can send it to lou at wdwradio.com, or you can post in the message forums over at disneyworldtrivia.com. are beginning to spread about some of the expected changes to the Haunted Mansion over at Walt Disney World coming this fall, and they seem to confirm, if true, things that I've spoken about in the past. First, upgrades will be taking place to not only the audio and lighting systems, but to many of the special effects as well. 
the current Madame Leota crystal ball effect in the seance room will be replaced completely with a new version, which is said to be an improvement over the upgraded floating head effect already in place in Disneyland. The current bride figure in the attic scene will also be replaced with a new version, again also upgraded from the one already at Disneyland. The giant shaking spider figures in the staircase scene are going to be removed completely and an entirely new show scene is going to be put in place. Supposedly, the use of multiple staircases in a somewhat impossible sort of view, akin to some of M.C. Escher's kind of uh, impossible view paintings, is one of the rumored new effects. As more details come out, I will of course report them on the show. Cast members are telling me that the Wonders of Life Pavilion may not be dead yet, and it will once again be open seasonally, possibly again at Christmas. However, there's also a rumor that it may also be used for wine tasting this year during the Food and Wine Festival. I've also been told of some possible additional rumored enhancements over at Pirates of the Caribbean, although I have no specifics as of yet. Now, this may tie into some confirmed information that I have, in which I've learned from cast members that Disney is actively seeking actors to portray a Captain Barbosa for an as-yet unannounced project. And this role is going to call for someone with specific physical stature, and that it's for an hourly role. So I wonder how, if any way, this may tie into the rumors of the changes coming to the attraction itself. This fall, it's expected that the Sorcerer's Hat over at the Disney MGM Studios may be getting some more enhancements as well, such as fiber optics and some lighting effects that are going to allow the hat to change colors at night, much like you have over at Cinderella Castle and Spaceship Earth. It's not clear exactly when these may take place, but clearly they should be in place before the busy holiday season. I've also received a number of emails from people saying that Disney has filed for construction permits, which are titled Epcot Italy Promenade, and are described in the permits as the installation of a new bridge to the island in front of Italy. Now, while I have not seen these plans or or any of the permits, um, I have received this email, like I said, from a number of people. I don't have any more details, but I could assume that's maybe nothing more than just another access way onto the small island at the waterfront. I don't think it has any sort of major impact on the pavilion itself. And of course, if you have any rumors that you've heard or anything that you want to discuss, you can call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW, or you can email me anytime at lou at wdwradio.com. You know, I'm not the only guy who walks around Walt Disney World not riding attractions, but instead staring at the pavement or the windows or the walls or other obscurities all around the park. And sure, there's Jeff Pepper and a few other maybe uber Disney geeks online, but we're the exception rather than the norm. But there's one other guy, a strapping young man who can often be seen with his fedora hat on, camera in hand, and pages of... of of notes and emails from all of his adoring fans. And no, I'm not talking about Len Testa, but instead a man who has fueled the addiction of Disney fans worldwide for years with his books and his website. And of course, I'm talking about Steve Barrett, author of The Hidden Mickeys, A Field Guide to Walt Disney World's Best Kept Secrets. Their edition now available with over 300, with over 700 new Hidden Mickeys. Visit HiddenMickeysGuide.com. And of course, he is the webmaster of HiddenMickeysGuide.com. Steve, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks for having me, Lou. I, I, I'm not exactly a strapping man, but, you know, I like, I like that adjective for sure. <laughs> well, Steve... I think both of us are about the same height anyway, right? Yeah, I know. I wasn't going to start going down the whole height rule because, you know, <laughs> we'll start getting emails from Matt Hotchberg, and it's just, you know, it's not a pretty picture. So. <laughs> but, um, 
Steve is back for uh, for the first of what is going to be a recurring segment on the show, where he's going to highlight some new hidden Mickeys in the parks, as well as talk about some of his favorites. And he's also going to ask for your help in deciding whether or not some of the questionable hidden Mickeys qualify as a real bona fide hidden Mickey. So what, what do you say we talk about? What, what's new and exciting in the world of hidden Mickeys at Walt Disney World? Well, I'll tell you, uh, let, me, let me just give you an experience about what, what really excites me about, about hidden Mickeys, and that is finding a real gem of a hidden Mickey. And they're, they're out there, and, and they keep appearing. Uh, the cast members, and uh, not so much the cast members, but the Imagineers and the designers uh, put them in uh, at random. They don't, they don't let us know about it, and, and, and uh, they're there for us to find. And, 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 for example, I showed this one at, at, in Pennsylvania. It's, uh, it's on the globe at, in the Yacht Club lobby. And this is a spectacular hidden Mickey. Um, and, by the way, I get a number of, of posts daily, actually, on my website. And I, I print them all out, and I, I chase them down and, and try to find them to see if they're real or not. Well, I would say maybe one out of twenty is going to be a, a true, really, a, a really spectacular gem of a hidden Mickey that's going to really excite me. And this was one of those. So I go to the yacht club uh, because only one person at this time has sent me this this post, and since then another person has, has verified it. But there's no need for verification because it's a it's a spectacular hidden Mickey. You go to the globe in the, in the Yacht Club lobby. It's a huge globe. I, I don't know if you remember uh, how it looks, but it's it's an old it's a globe of the old uh, Earth as uh, as it was pictured in the days of yore. But um, on on a lower part of the globe, as you walk in the entrance doors and face the globe, it's to the right. It's in the right lower segment, and it's in, in an ocean below a serpent. There's a serpent in the ocean there. And below that, very low, and it's in the dark, there's a, there's a beautiful, bright blue, classic three-circle Mickey on that globe. And at first, I didn't see it. And, and, you, and you can't see it. In fact, I, probably the first person who saw it was, was a child, because it's, it's the eye level of a child, actually. So you have to bend down and look at it. It's in the dark. And at first, I sort of took a picture of the area and looked at my camera, and by George, it's a real <laughs> hidden Mickey there. It was unbelievable. So I got down and just marveled at it for several minutes because whoever put it there just did a wonderful job. It's it's a, it's the perfect classic three circle Mickey. It's proportioned correctly. It has all the attributes we like to ascribe to a classic Mickey. The ears and head are touching, and they're in proper alignment and proportional and, and obviously it was put there on purpose. Now is this where you start getting the funny looks like I do when you're crawling around on the floor taking pictures of the bottom <laughs> of a globe and you know. I definitely get looks <laughs> and, and thankfully uh, sometimes I recruit people over there and and uh, I'm able to show them and talk about Hidden Mickey so I, I, I get new fans that way for sure. But Are they mostly security guards who are asking you to please get a ball? <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually speaking of uh, yeah, security guards sometimes get involved too. Uh, but that reminds me of a story. I got an email uh, several months ago from uh, a guy named Enrique, and he's an artist. 
and he lives in California. And he he emailed me. He says, you know, I I am the artist that repainted the mural in Conservation Station at Rafiki's Planet Watch when it was damaged by the floods, uh, by water after the uh, 2004 hurricane. Evidently, the bottom of the mural was damaged, and he was consigned to repaint it. Well, he repainted it, but he forgot to put in the hidden Mickeys. And he got so many complaints, including the night janitor uh, complained to him that he needed to put those hidden Mickeys back in there. So he had to do that. He put them back in there. And he, he, he told me, by the way, that we had found all of the hidden Mickeys in the mural, certainly that he knew of. So. Hmm. But yes, a lot of people are involved with this. And I, don't, I have no idea how long that hidden Mickey has been there on the Globe in the Yacht Club lobby. I don't know how long it's been there because uh, the artist who put it there doesn't announce it to the world and doesn't put it on any, any list. They just wait for us to find them. Well, that's why I said that you're, you're fueling the, the addiction of people because I think people are just on a constant quest, consciously <laughs> or subconsciously, looking for hidden Mickeys. Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's a wonderful game. And I, I tell you, um, at the rate they appear over, over, over the month, uh, there's probably in the order of one or two hundred more uh, good ones out there that haven't been found yet, and just in Walt Disney World. Hmm. At the, at the rate that I'm finding these new gems that come along, it's on the order of, of 100 at least uh, new ones that, that haven't been found yet. And, and again, they keep, re, they keep appearing over time, so it's, it's a constant uh, evolution of, of the Hidden Mickey's game. Well, you know what? I was doing a, uh, with Jeff Pepper on the show, I was doing what we call a, a Disney scene investigation. We were talking about the queue of the Jungle Cruise. And let me ask, I, I mentioned something that I called... Uh, an auditory uh, hidden Mickey because there's a line and there's a song that's playing in the queue uh, there's kind of a, this uh, radio DJ playing this old time music and there's a song by Cole Porter called You're the Top and there's a line from there that says you're the melody from a symphony by Strauss you're an O'Neill drama you're Whistler's mama you're Mickey Mouse I said that was an audio hidden Mickey Give me your decision. Does it? Is there such a thing or did I, am I totally out of left field? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think that would definitely qualify as a bona fide hidden Mickey. Yes. And so, Lou, if you could describe that, and, and so I could tell the guest, we could tell the guest how to find it in the queue, uh, I'll definitely put it up on the site. Well, I'm not going to I mean, sing I, it. I can, I can, what's that? I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I, consider that, I consider that a wonderful hidden Mickey example. But I, you know, I, I, I like to be able to tell the guest how to get to it. You know what I mean? To to when they are in the queue, we have to describe what to listen for and and uh, and how to find it. Okay, cool. Oh yeah, let's do that. I'll put it up on the slide. I think that would be a wonderful hidden Mickey. <laughs> you know what? I don't know why I get so happy when I when I tell you about a new hidden Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't be able to sleep tonight. I'm telling you, you told me about a new gray one here. That uh, excites me. Any other uh, any other new ones that that you really like or you think are just pretty unique? I'll tell you. I'll tell you another experience I had recently. Uh, I like to go out to Disney World with with friends and family, especially ones that are interested in finding hidden Mickey's. For example, a number of my neighbors like uh, searching for hidden Mickey's with me. And by the way, I don't, I don't have to find them myself anymore. It makes it easy for me. I I just go out there with the posts that people send me, and that's enough game for me. In fact, it takes up all my time out there. So well, I was out there with 
it's, I was going to say, it's fun for us, too, to be able to do it. And it, obviously, on your website now, people can submit. Uh, they can yes. submit hidden Mickeys that they find. They can write about them. They can also submit the pictures, and then you'll approve them. Or, and we'll talk about it later on, if it's questionable, you'll actually ask for people's votes as to whether they think it, it qualifies or not. Correct. Correct. Yes. And I, I encourage people to post because that's, that's, that's how I fill my time. That's what I want to do. I, lo- I love to do the research uh, to, to verify these hidden Mickeys. But I was out there um, actually a couple of days ago with uh, a, fr- a friend and, and, and a fellow uh, Disney addict. His name is Bill, and he lives he lives near Disney World. In fact, he retired from New Jersey and moved to to uh, St. Cloud to be near Disney World. He's and living, he goes out there all the time. He's living the Lou Mangello dream, retiring, <laughs> yes. leaving New Jersey, <laughs> moving near Disney World. Because he talks to me all the time, and he's like, yeah, you know, this morning I got up, and I had some coffee on Main Street, and tonight I'm going to have dinner at Epcot, exactly. and I'm like, listen, it's 112 degrees in New Jersey with 95% humidity, and I'm stuck in my office, so... <laughs> right, right. No, it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun living near Disney World, as uh, uh, you know, as you might imagine, but I was out there with Bill, and, you know, I'd, I'd heard about this Hidden Mickey. People had written about it on, on some other websites um, over the years. It's in the great movie ride. In the, in the Wizard of Oz section, and and by the way, you know over the years I, I've looked for hidden Mickey's in the Wizard of Oz section of the Great Movie Ride, and and, and the flowers and and the Munchkin's cheeks, and <laughs> you know lots of posts that people think they saw. I've, I've never found a really convincing one in there, but but Bill's tell me, no no Steve, there's one in the trees, there's one in the trees, and I'd heard about one in the trees, but I'd never been able to find it, and and a lot of times the reason I can't find these. Uh, at least easily is because a lot of posts that people send me are after the fact. You know, they 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 go to their vacation at Disney World and they get home and they're looking at their photos and and they're trying to send me a description of what they remember. And it's not always precisely accurate, you know. So it makes it challenging to find them. Well, sure enough, when Bill showed me this classic hidden mickey in the trees i saw it i'd never seen it before i've been on that ride so many times i'd never seen it there in the trees <laughs> but it is there it is there and i'll put a picture of it on my website in the next few weeks but uh it, it is it's probably the one the one that people have been talking about on other websites over the last 10 years and i just never had been able to see it Hmm. Well, what I'll do is I'll put a link up in the show notes, but obviously you can go to hiddenmickeysguide.com. You can browse through the catalog. You can also now, there's a new feature where you can see some of Steve's new hidden Mickeys. So if, you, if you're a frequent visitor, you can see some of the new ones he posts. Make sure you keep an eye out for the Wizard of Oz one. But are there, the, the other thing about your website that I really like is that now you invite people to interact not only by submitting hidden Mickeys, but by helping you decide what might qualify. And they can actually vote on those that are questionable. Are there any ones that you have on there right now that, that really are such a questionable hidden Mickey that specifically you like people to come on over and take a look at? Yes. Um, I have a questionable hidden Mickey section. And, and currently when I have a, a post that's rather marginal or questionable, I'll put it in that section. It's, in, it's just in the questionable hidden Mickey section of the of the website and and um, I have a number of those there the one I put up recently was uh, was a hidden Mickey sort of shape in the in the um, again it's in the MGM Studios at Walt Disney one man's one man's dream 
walk through. About three quarters of the way through, as you're walking through the attraction towards the, uh, uh, the, the movie at the end, on the left, there, there's Walt standing by a huge map behind him of the Florida Project. Mm-hmm. And one of the images that, he, that his artist put on the, uh, on the map looks like maybe a classic Mickey. It's not, again, it's not, it's not a perfect three-circle classic Mickey, or I would have immediately put it up on my website. It's, it's a bit distorted. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's marginal enough that I need help with it. I, I need people to look at it and apply some criteria and, and, and uh, help me either include it or exclude it. The most important aspect to me, or certainly one of the most important, is do you think, as an observer, do you think that image was put there on purpose by an artist or the Imagineer to be a hidden Mickey? I was actually going to ask you about Not just an accidental, you know, not just an accidental uh, collection of circles. Uh, I I like it to to be a purposeful, if if you, as much as we can tell that, you know, we can't, can't always tell that. The re- I was going to ask you about that specifically because I did a, a segment on the show a couple of weeks ago about the American Adventure Pavilion, and we really went into a lot of detail, and I spent some time with one of the cast members there. And if you're familiar with the pavilion, after you walk through the rotunda and as you go up uh, the Hall of Flags, up, up the escalators or the, the stairs to the Hall of Flags, at the bottom of the stairs and again at the top are three giant uh, floor-to-ceiling, they almost look like they're bronze eagle plaques. And they're actually they're actually ventilation things for for the for the AC system, but surrounding each one of those plaques are a series of circles, and in each of the corners of these circles, it, it's clearly a it's a classic hidden Mickey in that it's the yeah. proportions are right. But my feeling and the feeling of the cast member was that they probably shouldn't qualify as hidden Mickeys because wasn't really the intention of the person that put it there to make it a hidden Mickey, even though it looks exactly like one. Well, you know, Lou, I, I actually count that when it's a hidden Mickey. Um, but I agree with you. It's hard to know if it's purposeful or not. Uh, in that, in, in the areas you're talking about, it's probably not purposeful as a hidden Mickey. You're, you're absolutely right. But it's so perfect, so perfectly proportioned <laughs> that I, I can't, you know, I, I had to include it. So that's not, that's not the only criterion. For sure, because because uh, in in many cases we just don't know if it's purposeful or not. Because the artists and the Imagineers don't admit to it, they don't keep their own lists. So we have we have to make that decision. And you know if it's not if it's not uh, if it's not perfectly proportioned and aligned, um, then we have to we have to debate about it. That that's what what I want people to do on there. In the questionable section is, is vote and help me, you know, include or exclude these images as hidden Mickey's. Right. And, and that's the fun part, like I said, for us, you know, as sure. guests and visitors and, and whatnot. And you, you can go to Steve's site. You don't have to register. You can go and just go ahead and vote. Uh, and while you're there, the other thing we should mention, Steve, too, in addition to the new hidden Mickey's and the questionable hidden Mickey's are the books, because that's really where it all started. And you've recently released two new books, and it's important to make the distinction. You released the third edition of the Hidden Mickey's Guide for Walt Disney World, and I make a point to mention it because it's if you have the second edition, there's a big difference in this new one because there's a lot more Hidden Mickey's. 
at least 200 more, correct? There's over 700 hidden Mickeys in the third edition. And then, the, and, and as you mentioned, also alluded to the Disneyland Hidden Mickey's book just came out about a month ago. So uh, there's 100, between 150 and 200 Hidden Mickey's in the Disneyland book. So, yes, I, I had a lot of fun at Disneyland, as you, as you uh, mentioned on my homepage. <laughs> uh, I went out there three times uh, last year and just had a ball talking to cast members and you know, rooting out the uh, hidden Mickeys out there. Disneyland is a wonderful place. I fell in love with it all over again. I, I see a research trip in our near future. I think we have to make a special <laughs> trip out there. But, uh, yeah, again, I'm going to put the link up in the show notes, but you can go over to hiddenmickeysguide.com. If you're going to be down at MouseFest this year, by all means, make sure you go to one or all of Steve's Hidden Mickey's hunts. They're a lot of fun, and there's nothing like going through with the master himself and, and pointing out and picking out uh, hidden Mickey's. They're a lot of fun, and I enjoy we'll it. Have I some, be there. We'll have some great new ones to look at. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. And, and bring your walking shoes, because like I say every year, it's like Moses leading his people as Steve <laughs> <laughs> brings people through Adventureland and Frontierland. But uh, Steve, my friend, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Um, like I said, we're going to have you back from time to time to talk about some yeah. new Hidden Mickey's and questionable Hidden Mickey's. And, um, and thank you very much. My pleasure, Lou. Thanks for having me. I'm happy and so grateful to be able to announce that the WDW Radio Show has been nominated for the Best Travel Podcast for 2007 over at podcastawards.com. And before I go any further, I want to give my sincere thanks to everyone who nominated the show. I also have to give much of the credit to all of my special guests who have come on the show to help with the various segments, everybody that's contributed to the show's content and production, of course, Jeff Pepper, for his excellent work with me week after week. And more than anything else, I sincerely want to thank all of you for listening to the show each and every week. I consider myself very humbled by this, and I'm very fortunate to be considered this year among such a great group of shows. But now, I need to ask for your help, because many of you have written to me over the past few months offering your assistance, and here's one way you really can help out. Voting for the Podcast Awards begins on July 28th and will end on August 11th. You can vote once per day, and you must verify your vote via an email that you're going to receive. All you need to do is head on over to podcastawards.com, look for the travel category, it's on the bottom right, and vote for WDW Radio. You'll receive an email that needs to be verified, so please be sure to validate your votes. Remember, you can vote every day, but only once per day. And considering the number of very popular shows also nominated in this category, each of your daily votes is going to be extremely important. Winners are going to be announced at the 2007 Podcast Expo in Ontario, California on September 28th, and I'd also like your help in supporting some other friends of the show that have been nominated in other categories as well, including the Inside the Magic podcast, which was nominated for the second year in a row in Best Produced, and Clinton over the Comedy Forecast in the Comedy category. No matter the outcome, I mean it sincerely when I say it really is an honor to be nominated and mentioned in the same company as so many of these wonderful shows. Thank you again for all your support and for listening to the show. Thank you in advance for any help you can provide and for your votes. Please help spread the word and let other people know. And again, that's podcastawards.com.
This week's visit aboard the Walt Disney World Wayback Machine, Jeff and I are going to take a trip back to opening day at, at the Magic Kingdom in 1971. And we're going to go back to an attraction that I, and I know Jeff, and probably many of you have fond memories of, and you probably miss way too much. And for some of us, maybe even conjures up thoughts of, of wishing bad things on a, a furry little bear. And we're, of course, talking about Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Jeff, of course, welcome back, and thank you for taking this trip aboard the Wayback Machine with me. Thanks, Luke. Glad to be here, and uh, by the time we're done, we're going to have people wondering why these two gentlemen did your, their graduate thesis on, you know, a silly little dark ride, but <laughs> prove them all that they were there's some really, really cool stuff going on in, in Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Well, you know, it, it it was a silly dark ride, but it, but for so many of us, and maybe just in our generation, it's something that really is missed a, a great deal still to this day. And I know a lot of people probably are very happy that maybe we're, we're finally getting around to talking about Toad. Yeah, it's it's very unique, and it's much more unique than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Uh, when you especially compare it to its peers, such as Peter Pan and Snow White, it was very different on many levels, and it was just... It was a very, very interesting experience, and one that, like you said, people were, a lot of people were very, very fond and, and, and waxed very sentimental with. Yeah, we're going to talk all about the attraction itself. We're going to talk about the characters and, and, and how it relates to the film that it was based on. And we'll talk about some of those things that really made the ride very, very unique on a number of levels. Um, some of the kind of the quick facts and details about the ride, like I said, it did open with the Magic Kingdom on October 1st, 1971. It unfortunately closed um, with a great deal of fanfare, actually, on September 7th, 1998. It was a sea ticket attraction between 1971 and 1980, back when they used the uh, uh, the old A through E ticket books. And uh, Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World is not really where it, it, it kind of started from. It actually opened in Disneyland with the park back in 1955. Yeah, and it's rooted in uh, the Disney uh, animated feature film, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And one of the things you and I were talking about is just how the, the character of Mr. Toad and the setting and everything is not exactly derived from one of the you know premier feature films or one of the ones that, you know, when you put it on the level of Cinderella or Peter Pan or, you know, any of those, those classics. Mr. Toad's not really up there, and so his recognition level is not nearly as great as so many other Disney characters. But the movie was um, released in 1949, and that was only within six years of Disneyland opening. So when you put it in perspective, the fact that it was a, one of the opening attractions at Disneyland in 55, you know, it was because it was a fairly recent property, and it was relatively popular in its day. So it really wasn't all that unusual for it to be there in Disneyland, it's just when you jump ahead to 1971 and the opening of Walt Disney World, it's kind of gotten a little bit more further removed from the Disney mainstream. And so at that point, it was just a little bit off the radar, as, as it were. But the story itself was based on the Kenneth Graham uh, book that was published originally in 1908. And it de- detailed the adventures of Miss, uh, the Wind in the Willows was the name of the book. Uh, and Mr. Toad... Uh, has a fascination with a motor car, and he ultimately gets framed for stealing the motor car and loses Toad Hall, his large place of um, kind of family estate. And the characters of, you know, Ratty, Mole, uh, McBadger, Cyril, and the Weasels and Mr. Winky are the villains of the piece who basically steal Toad Hall away from him. And 
that is pretty much a lot of what then rolls over into the attraction. Yeah, and like you said, the part of, I think, and we'll talk about it later, part of, of the attraction's demise, I think, and why Toad eventually failed, at least in Walt Disney World, is because they weren't classic characters. I think maybe a lot of people almost may have been more familiar with them from the book as opposed to having seen the movie, especially as time you know got on farther and farther along. Um, and, and even to some extent, I think so many people, their first exposure to these characters probably very likely was the the attraction at the park. Um, and I'm sure they didn't tie. I'm sure they never tied it to the fact that there was a movie either. Yeah, exactly. And 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 part of that was also going back a little bit to you know the background of the movie a little bit more is it was a package film. Uh, Disney in the late '40s made a series of these package films: Melody Time, uh, Make My Music. We've talked about a few of them here relating to Pecos Bill and uh, other things. And this one was a package film. It was just two two components, and that was um, Ichabod, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and then The Wind in the Willows, which was the Mr. Toad portion. But the very fact that when they went ahead to re-release this or rebroadcast or whatever these stories in later years, they kind of split them up, and they, they basically got recycled for television shows. So they never really gained that kind of stature as a feature film, you know, like Cinderella or 101 Dalmatians or Jungle Book. So it just had a lot of things like that going against it. And, and again, you know, as time went by, just the recognition factor diminished. It didn't, it didn't have a very strong presence on home video. There just wasn't a whole lot out there to keep it alive beyond the, uh, the, the theme park ride. You know, and it's funny because you talked about, you know, how it was packaged and, and the, uh, the movie was called The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And if you're, if you're somebody at Disney and you picked it up and say, you know, let's make a movie out of one of these, it almost would have made more sense to make a movie, uh, I'm sorry, to make an attraction out of, uh, especially maybe even like in Liberty Square, make something out of The Headless Horseman. And we could do a little trivia there. Lou, there is an Ichabod Crane reference in uh, Liberty Square. Yes, there is. And I know exactly what you're <laughs> Go ahead. Since you brought he, it up, tell us where it is. He, he, he gives music lessons. There's a little sign for Ichabod Crane. Uh, is it voice lessons or music lessons? He gives, um, he gives music lessons, yep. And it's uh, is it the Christmas shop? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the Christmas shop is actually, if, you, if when you're coming over the bridge from the hub into Liberty Square, there's the Christmas shop on the left-hand side across from where we all go and get our funnel cakes over at Sleepy Hollow. And it, that, that shop is actually divided up into three shops. And there's if you look very carefully, both of the outside facade and the inside of the shop, you'll see there's actually three different shops that make it up and I'm going to save this for a trivia question later on but one of those shops is from somebody that gives singing lessons and it's Ichabod Crane now it was connected folks it was connected <laughs> way more we're reaching here but you know the other thing I was thinking about and and I guess it tied into something that we had done earlier was that the uh, the weasels from Wind in the Willows and from uh, uh, Mr. Toad actually made a they kind of reappeared later on in another Disney film actually two Oh, I, I was only thinking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but what's the other one? They uh, were supporting characters in uh, the Mickey Mouse version of Prince and the Popper. Oh, but nobody saw that, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I was so proud of myself with my Roger Rabbit. <laughs> so Now you know how it feels sometimes to be in my seat. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about the, the attraction itself, uh, because this is really what we all kind of we miss and we love. and. I, I said earlier how uh, originally the attraction was and actually still is in Disneyland, but the one in Walt Disney World was very, very different. It was not unlike a lot of attractions that Disney kind of recycles. I don't mean that in a bad way when they put it in a, in a second theme park. When they brought it over to Walt Disney World, it was very, very different on a number of levels. The first and biggest difference was the fact 
that in Walt Disney World, it had two tracks as opposed to Disneyland's, which had one, which is amazing. I mean, this is the first time Disney ever decided to give you two different experiences, and, you, and you'll see later on why they were so different. Uh, in the same attraction, you know, of all the, the things that Disney could have done it with, they decided to do it in, in the Magic Kingdom with Mr. Toad. And the thing that makes that very interesting as well is in a lot of cases where they have attractions or rides that have dual tracks or mirror tracks, such as Space Mountain, um, which I think some other examples, the experiences are identical pretty much other than there might be a, a mirrored symmetry or whatever. But with Mr. Toad, by going on the two different tracks, you did experience two different environments. Yeah, two completely different experiences. I mean, they call, all kind of ended up the same way, but what you saw along the way, both in scenery and in characters, was uh, was very different. And the attraction in Disney World was also different as well um, in, the, in, in its entire scope, in actually how it was designed and how uh, it's been described as much more artistic than the one in Disneyland. I think, too, the, one of the things that when I was talking about early on and saying how unique it was, it's really very distinct from the other dark rides because the other dark rides um, tell very linear stories that more or less are the stories from the movies. When um, you ride Snow White or you ride Peter Pan, you're basically a spectator and you're going through vignettes from the film and it's telling the film story from beginning to end. And with Mr. Toad, it's not doing that at all. It's actually... One of the things I read was that the Imagineers decided to kind of expand on the backstory and kind of throw in some elements to expand sort of the Mr. Toad universe as it was portrayed in the movie. But also what they wanted to do was kind of create a backstory to explain it. And it's not really obvious, but their, their idea was that you were sort of experiencing a crazy dream that Toad was having that basically brought all of this together. But it's still a stream of conscious kind of experiences as, as we'll probably uh, talk about here but that's what makes it very different is that the other thing is is that you're actually in a ride vehicle that is taken right from the film the motor car in the film is an integral part of the plot um, Toad's fascination with the motor car and just sort of the cr crazy wild careening nature of him wanting to, to drive it whereas Snow White and Peter Pan the attractions are very much linear um, tellings of their stories. Uh, basically, when you ride them, you're a spectator and you're just basically riding through scenes that basically tell the stories of their movies. Toad is very different in that it's it's not that. It's not taking you through the events of the film. The, the Imagineers kind of conceived it as a kind of a crazy dream um, from Toad's perspective. And it actually expands on a lot of the scenes um, in the movie. Uh, it expands on the characters. And it really does, you know, play to the ride vehicle. The ride vehicle is, in fact, an integral part of the film. Uh, Toad has a, a, a very strong fascination and obsession with the motor car, and that leads to all his troubles. And basically putting you right in that device. You're actually riding a motor car. It's, a, it's an integral part of your, your experience. Whereas in Peter Pan or Snow White, you're, you're just in a ride vehicle. It's, it's basically your seats for the show that just happens to move, but it's not really a part of the storyline that's happening. Right, and, and that's a difference, and I, and I have to take Snow White specifically because I'm sure many people are screaming at their iPods right now saying, well, you know, in Snow White's Scary Adventures, when it opened up as Snow White's Adventures, you really were supposed to be Snow White, and a lot of people didn't get it, and that's why the attraction changed, and now you see Snow White, but you were supposed to be riding as Snow White, but the way it, the story was being told, you're 100% right, and 
the, the, the method of, of transportation through the different scenes was very different. Here, you really became immersed in the story, like you would be driving that, that funny, little, uh, funny little car you know, through the different scenes, just as Toad would have been doing. And, and what's important is that the source material, when we go back to the movie, the movie was very wild and crazy. Um, it was very kinetic. It, um, it had one very climactic scene at the end where they're in Toad Hall and they're fighting over the deed, and it's just a lot of things happening. And even though the ride is not telling that same story, it is playing to that sense of just craziness. And, and that's what really, really makes it stand out. And another thing I want to mention is that when I was talking about the backstory, that the Imagineers were expanding on a few things, and one of the really interesting little bits of trivia was there's a scene that's a gypsy camp, and the gypsy camp is, um, I believe, on ride on track A, mm. and you go through the gypsy camp. Well, in the um, in the movie, Cyril, uh, Cyril is uh, Toad's best friend. Uh, he is the horse, and they're kind of like partners in crime, you know, in craziness or whatever, and what the Imagineers established then is that when they appear at the, in the movie, they appear driving this gypsy cart. Uh, Cyril's pulling the gypsy cart and, you know, Toad's riding on it. They basically play to the fact that that originated. He met Cyril in the gypsy camp, and that's where the cart and everything came from in the ride. So there's an interesting connection there. Um, they also bring about, you know, in Toad Hall. And they also expand on uh, Toad Hall, uh, Toad's estate. Uh, in the ride, there's they feature scenes that involve a butler and a cook, and those weren't in the original movie, but they kind of expanded the whole setting as you're careening through these different rooms to include these new characters. Right, and if you are familiar with the film and, and did go through the attraction, you would recognize a lot of those same scenes. You'd, you'd recognize Winky's Pub, where you know he first got the car um, from the weasel, and, and obviously, like you said, Toad Hall and the libraries and... and Shireland and the different locations, but uh, why don't you say we kind of start at the beginning? We'll start at the queue and kind of make our way through the attraction itself because I think the queue, I know for me personally, is is very memorable and it brings up a lot of um, childhood memories because obviously the the song that plays in the queue is something that still sticks with me to the, to this day, and that's the Mer- Merrily song. Merrily, merrily, merrily on our way to nowhere in particular. It's kind of like I thought I was baiting you to sing song. it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I try, I try to speak my lyrics. <laughs> Probably much, much better. And you know what's really stupid? And I and I don't know why um, that this still sticks in my mind. But when when you're in there, you kept on, especially as you got close to the thing. You always heard, "Step out to your right, please." When the car stops, please step out to your right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I was going to say, please tell me that you remember that as well. <laughs> I do remember that. No, I'm not going to. I should have done dead silence and done the crickets and everything. Yeah, gee, thanks. <laughs> uh, the uh, the cars themselves were named after, obviously, characters from the films. They were Mr. Toad, uh, Toady, Ratty, Moly, Mac Badger, Cyril, Winky, and Weasel. And, and let me throw some trivia out there for you. Sure. What two characters uh, appeared in the show and in, in the movie? I mean, in the in the attraction in the movie, it did not appear in the original Wind in the Willows book. Um, I'm gonna say Ratty, and I'm gonna say Molly. I don't want to embarrass you. Let's just move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those of no, us, was, uh, go ahead. <clears throat> it was Cyril, his his good buddy Cyril, and Mister Winky the pub owner, those two characters were Disney created. They weren't in the original cast. 
You know I can go right back and edit this all out and make myself <laughs> look as though I got them. <laughs> oh, I'll put it on the forums. <laughs> That's all right, though. But um, the, 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 like we said, the, the thing that was really unique about this attraction, and this is where you, you boarded on in the queue, was the fact that you could pick one of two different tracks. There was basically a track A and a track B. Um, as you first entered Toad Hall and, g- and got into the dark ride section, it almost looked as though the two cars and the two different tracks would collide before they, they missed each other and, and went into the uh, into the different scenes. But let's talk about the different tracks themselves and how they differed and what you saw. Uh, because you really did get two different experiences, although they ended the same way. Um, on track A, you entered into Toad Hall. You went through the trophy room and the kitchen and the, the, the aforementioned gypsy camp. You went down the one-way street through the town square. You went through Winky's Pub. Again, that's where, where Toad originally got his car. Uh, there was a blackout room, a rain room, and then the train tunnel. And then we'll, we'll talk about where, where this all ends up later on. Track B was different because you went to the library, uh, to a barn down the one-way street, to a, through a town square, uh, to a jail, and then through Shireland, and then again to the same train tunnel. And then... For the interesting thing, and many people out there who are totally unfamiliar, this might be outraged, but yes, it was possible that when you went to Walt Disney World, you would go to hell. <laughs> and not hell like the 12 o'clock at night, <laughs> middle of the summer, two tired kids, monorail crowded type of hell. We're talking about the literal hell. <laughs> In fact, yes, there are probably plenty of parents out there that wish they could have went running, screaming too, <laughs> and left the other hell behind. Yeah, I mean... This is one of the things that really made this attraction so unique. Uh, it, it are the things that you saw along your journey. You know, people spoke so much about the, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean, political correctness, and the pirates chasing the women, and women being auctioned off as brides. But you can't forget what else you got to see in Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. You saw gunfights. You saw the police shooting at the weasels. There was this female bartender in the bar scene in a very, very low-cut dress, Holding you know, mugs of beer, mugs of beer. <laughs> <laughs> right? So don't Around tell me there, the right, right? Don't there. tell me there wasn't alcohol in the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was the Gypsy Camp, you know. Uh, there was also a painting of a nude woman in one of the scenes up on the walls, and of course, like you said, where else could you come face to face with the devil and all his little demons while kind of tooling around in your car through hell? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what we were alluding to at the beginning. This, it was a very, very irreverent ride, um, even by Disney standards, as, as just for all the things you described. And what is very, what I like about it very much, it's very cool about it, is that it plays to Toad. The character of Toad is this wild and crazy guy. Forgive me, Steve Martin. Uh, he is just he's just wide open. He's all about enjoying life, you know, just out there. And he's, in contrast to his very kind of reserved and stuffy friends being Ratty Mole and McBadger. And there's that contrast. And just I think the Imagineers just just played wide open with it. They said, this is what this is all about. This is what the story is all about. It's about just careening through life. And there's just a lot of allegory there. And it's interesting is that there are some very, very well-read Disney scholars out there that have written very intelligent, (laughs) articulate (laughs) things about Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And I know there's probably people out there going, you've got to be kidding. (laughs) It's a ride, people, right? (laughs) Yeah, but it it was very much that very multi-textured type of experience even though you were looking at painted plywood 
Right. And that's what really, really makes it special. And that it, it, the, the brilliance was in its simplicity because most of it really was just, like you said, 2D. Most of it, and, and very little animation. You know, there might be like a waving hand here or there. And there was a couple of 3D things uh, around. There was a, a toad statue that kind of wobbled. Um, there was a moly tipping his hat. But it was very, very simple. Um, it was that, that, that simple animation that really evidenced the fact that it was the ride itself, it was the track design and the scenes that you went through that really made it su- such a good attraction. And it's the one place, I think, in Disney, and, and you know maybe it is just kind of me remembering this as a child, but you kind of felt, you, you felt like you were inside the cartoon because of the way everything was drawn and because everything the way it was, was painted and it was so black in there. You, you felt like you were kind of dropped in the middle of, of the actual animated film. And everything was very unpredictable. I think that's where, again, if you you know you went and you rode Peter Pan, or you rent and rode Small World or Snow White, you were dealing with very low key, very happy, you know, very slow moving experiences. And then you got in the car um, for Toad, and you were just going every which way, and you were literally you didn't know which way you were going to turn. I mean, there were times when it, it, when you mentioned the two tracks. At one point, they come together in the same room. Um, was that the town square? I was say town square. Yeah. And you're careening toward each other at a couple times, and these were very sharp turns, and there were points where you were literally, you know, going through fireplaces. And so when you went from one room to the next, you couldn't be exactly sure whether you were going to actually go through a set prop or not. Mm-hmm. You know, there was the logical place where you could go, the exit, or like a door or whatever, but that's not where you necessarily always went. And so that really gave it a degree of spontaneity. And sad to say, there were you know there was a scare factor for little kids. Um, I know you know you could really get kind of a little bit freaked out by some of the unpredictableness of it. You know, like going to hell, for example. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you you mentioned the, the the scenes, and that's the thing. The some of the scenery was was really beautiful, but there was, it was. The ride was so fast, and there was so much going on, and, and that's why it also had a great repeatability factor, because even if you rode on the same track, there was so much to look around and so much to see, uh, you know, and like I said, the, the, the tracks and the scenes were different, you know, on, on track A, uh, even the characters were different, so for example, track A, uh, there were women on track A, there were no women, no women characters on track B, and Ratty was on track A, whereas Mac Badger was on track B, along with police officers, and neither would be on the other side. So if you really start to pay attention, you'll see com- what a completely different experience there was. And again, so much to try and take in, so much to look at as you were going through it. And, and again, when you're talking about simplicity, the, the penultimate moment of the ride is the aforementioned uh, train track where you are heading directly into the light of a train. And it was pitch black, and so it, it was a very simple effect, but it was just so totally, totally effective and, you know, and like I said, as a number of Disney scholars have written about this, you know, you're talking death here. <laughs> <laughs> you basically, when you, when you go from point A being you're heading dead on, straight on into a train, and then you're in hell, well, guess what that means, folks? <laughs> so we have some pretty strong themes here, right. albeit satirical and comical. Right. And, and I mean, obviously, a, a very heavy religious overtone. I mean, you're talking about, you know concepts like hell and the devil and, and things like that so uh, and this crazy life that Mr. Toad was leaving didn't exactly reward him in the end <laughs> <laughs> right. so see see, kids you better behave yourself yeah. or you're going to hell like Mr. Toad <laughs> yeah. so see there was a lesson to be learned here as well <laughs> and the funny thing is, is and, and I know there's got to be a few people out there that just went hey wait a minute and this 
part of the attraction was in a sense recreated on Test Track. You go to hell on Test Track? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that part of the Is that in the fast pass or the single rider line? <laughs> I obviously you're talking about the train uh, the train sequence. Yeah, when you're riding up around the bends. But the thing that was great about Toad is that it was so simple. Like you said, you were basically in a pitch black, empty room with a single headlight right in front of you. Yeah, and that's it. exactly. But the and sound was, effects know, that sound the, effects, yeah, yeah, it it really made it, um, it really made it great. And the thing that was great about the attraction too is for all the years that it was there, it really didn't change very much at all. I mean, it, there was one refurb in 1993. All they did was they take out the, the uh, original 36 cars that were replaced with new models that had a second row of seats. So now instead of having only two people, you had four, obviously try and help, you know, try and get some, some more throughput um, through the attraction itself during the day. And that's, and that's a good point in that, once again, we come to, you know, the demise of Toad and, you know, why why it was taken out and replaced with Winnie the Pooh, you know, a lot of people immediately will assume, well, it wasn't popular. You know, we talked about, you know, you, you know, not having the notoriety of the characters and everything like that. But from mostly, you know, the information I've had, that it was still pretty popular. It was still a popular attraction. You know, just the very fact that they're increasing the capacity on the cars there in 93 speaks right. to that. But again, like you said, you know, when they came to weigh out bringing Pooh in, I think it was more, you know, the 100-pound or, you know, the 900-pound gorilla that was Pooh kind of won won the match there right and, and i mean look that that's what it comes down to when, when people ask me all the time they say why did they take out toad i used to love that attraction blah 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 it, it's dollars and cents you're going to sell more poo plushes than you were toad plushes and that's all it really it really came down to because like you said when once the rumors started back in 1997 instantly so did the protests and the letter writing and all the the, the toad ins that that took place right there you know the ride was popular they had just up the seats like you just said um, people really seemed to care about the ride to do what they did but you know it, it came down to being able to sell merchandise and I guess I guess the one thing that I've seen a few people bring up and it's the kind of the only you know kind of scratch my head on it is people have brought up the fact that they could have coexisted you know there was room ultimately if they wanted to build a poo attraction in Fantasyland there was plenty of options and, and places for them to put it without putting Toad up on the sacrificial altar. So that that's kind of the only question mark I, I have about, you know, the decision, you know, the one that was made by Disney to do that. I think it comes back again to the popularity and the familiarity with the character itself. It's not Peter Pan. It's not Snow White. Classic characters from, you know, decades ago that, that kids today may not grow up with, but they're familiar with the characters. And I don't think Pooh, I'm sorry, I don't think Toad ever would have come into the mainstream much like all these other characters have on TV, in the movies, in the theme parks, and it just was—it was never going to get to that point. It's, and it's interesting too because there's there's a little bit of a kind of weird Disney connection with the fact that um, in 1996 there was a live-action version made of The Wind in the Willows, and it was British-made, and it had a lot of the folks from Monty Python associated, and I believe Terry Jones directed it, and they all played the various characters. And what happened was ultimately Disney distributed the home video version here in the United States. I believe they, they put it out in 1998. And I think it is something that's still available. Mm-hmm. Well, what they did was when they, it was originally called The Wind in the Willows, they changed the name to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride for its um, home video release. Right. right. And we should mention, too, that while the character wasn't very popular here, he was very, very popular over in England, but not enough yeah, to sustain so, the yeah. attraction here. 
it is, and then the parallels are very interesting because I, I, I read an article that had even compared the fact that you know you had Winnie the Pooh and you know Mr. Toad, which are based on very beloved British children's stories, and that you know they're put in sort of this you know rivalry <laughs> of sorts in, in an American theme park. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, like I said, people were very very. Um, I mean, they really came out in force, I mean, both literally and figuratively. I mean, there were there were totems. There were Save Mr. Toad Wild Ride signs and, and shirts and things like that uh, in 1998 in, in front of the park. I mean, really, um, you know, begging Disney to keep the attraction open. But it did close in September of 7th of, of 98. And I'll actually put a link up in the show notes where you can find out more about the Save Toad campaign because it was something that really had... Uh, it had legs, pardon the pun. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it was covered by, you know, major newspapers and things like that. But um, it obviously um, was all for naught. But uh, there still are some hidden and not-so-hidden tributes to Toad that you can find at Walt Disney World. And many of these, I'm sure many of you know about. Uh, inside the Many Adventures of Winnie Pooh, appropriately, there are two pictures that you can find in there. Uh, one of... Um, Toad and and Owl and another one of Winnie the Pooh and McBadger and Jeff explain to everybody why the one with Toad is is really pretty important and significant. Yeah, it's and again it's that attention to detail. Um, but the whole premise of the original film was that when Toad acquired the motor car, he was kind of conned or scammed out of it by uh, Mister uh, Winky and the Weasels. And what they what he did was he basically traded. Toad Hall to um, to Mr. Winky and the Weasels for the motor car. And as it comes up later in the story, the whole big climax of the film is them. They're all chasing the deed to Toad Hall. They, they want to get the deed back. If they can get the deed back, then then Toad can get the deed and he, he'll be the rightful owner of Toad Hall again. Well, that's what the picture um, that you're referring to shows. It shows Toad literally handing the deed to Owl. And so basically, you know, you're going through Al's room there in the Winnie the Pooh attraction. So that has very distinct meaning to the whole Toad mythos. I mean, it's, it's the deed is very, very important. And it's sort of just this symbolic handing off of the attraction uh, old to new. Yeah. And, and the other picture is really, uh, it's a little m- bit more difficult to find. It's on the floor scattered with a couple of other pictures. You have to kind of look up and over your right shoulder and look on the floor. Uh, and you'll see the picture of McBadger kind of tipping his hat to Pooh. But Pooh can also be found somewhere else, and, and this is a, a relatively um, relatively new thing. It's been only up for a couple of years. And if you go to the Haunted Mansion, and as you exit and you see all the, the mausoleums and the crypts, there's also a very small pet cemetery there. If you look all the way up in the left, way in the back, you'll actually find a Mr. Toad statue standing there uh, at the pet cemetery. And the very cool thing there is most people now have kind of gotten tuned into looking for it and seeing it. So he's, he's, he's a lot more visible than, you know, he was originally. But his gravestone has a poem on it. Are you familiar with that? I am. Okay. Should, should you want to have the pleasure? No, please. I, please. I will defer <laughs> to you. <laughs> his gravestone reads, Here lies Toad, sad but true, much less profitable than Pooh. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, it, it's, it's a clear, it's hard to read unless you have one of those super duper, you know, lenses on your camera. But it's obviously... The, the, the Imagineers acknowledge, you know, that that's really what it came down to. Uh, supposedly there's also, and I, and I haven't seen this, I don't have a picture myself. If anybody does, I'd love for you to send it to me. Uh, over at the World of Disney Store in downtown Disney, I've been told that there is an actual uh, a picture of Pooh, I'm sorry, a picture of Toad in one of the murals. Uh, but again, I can't confirm it because I don't have it 
uh, myself. But there are also other places that you still can see Toad today. Obviously, you can go to Disneyland and ride the original Mr. Toad there, which has remained pretty much true to what it was back in the beginning. Um, online, there's also a couple other good places that, I, that I, I really want to point out to you. One is Spencer Cook's Virtual Toad, and it's virtual-toad.com. This is a guy that really loved the attraction. You want to talk about somebody with amazing dedication. Um, he's basically creating this, com- you know, the, the entire computer-animated reconstruction of Walt Disney World's version of Mr. Toad. It's so good that it's scary. I mean, he's been working on this project for almost 10 years now. Uh, you can go there. You can see pictures. You can see some of the sample videos. Um, I mean, the guy is just doing it simply out of his love for it. And he's making the left side and the right side. And he's going to be able to let you really kind of virtually ride through it. Uh, there's also another link I'm going to put up in the show notes to probably the best post that I've read anywhere, um, really about Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And that comes from a blog that I really enjoy called Passport to Dreams, Old and New. And the blogger's name is Foxfur. And Jeff, I know you're familiar with this, and we, we, we both like um, the work that they do there. Yeah, Chris Fox uh, writes for that site, and she is tremendous. She's one of the best writers about Disney that I've ever encountered. And her post is called All Hail Toad. And Really, what it does is it articulates so much better everything that Lou and I were <laughs> and trying to communicate. Much more succinctly than we do, probably. Much more succinctly and, and, and much more articulately. It's, it's just it's a very, very good read. And it really does validate a lot of what we were saying about how it's just more than painted plywood. It's just it was an, a truly amazing experience on so many levels. Yeah, and again, I want to put links up to that. We should have, we should have Chris on the show one of these days to, to talk about one of these things. Then we'll really feel like, wow, <laughs> we yeah. don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, I still want my job. So yeah. no. <laughs> um, there's two other places that you can kind of sort of find Toad, uh, one of which is, is inaccessible to guests, but I have been told by cast members that there is a break room under the Magic Kingdom in the Utilidors called the J. Thaddeus Toad Memorial Break Room. And of course, you can also get the uh, piece of history pins from a couple of years ago. They had piece of history pins from Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Um, that had a little kind of chip taken out of one of the either um, uh, one of the plywood cutouts or some other prop from the attraction. So you can probably take a look on eBay and see if you can find those. But Jeff, I, I want to kind of wrap this segment up with a, uh, a somewhat rhetorical question and kind of ask us and ask the listeners why do we? Why is Mr. Toad's Wild Ride still such a cult classic? Why is it simple nostalgia? Why is it that it is something that people still remain so passionate about? Yeah, absolutely. Let's 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 hear from everybody. Are, are we crazy in that we are so nostalgic about it, or or well, that, that's, a, that's a simple yes? But <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to the but next we, question. <laughs> are we more crazy than everybody else? So, right. I don't yeah, think we're alone. Yeah, but you kind of you know weigh in and, and let us know how you feel. Yeah, send an email or, or even better yet, call the voicemail line 206-202-4WDW. You can also post um, over at the forums at DisneyWorldTribute.com and the WDW radio section. Again, I'm going to put links and some photos up in the show notes as well as um, uh, references over to some of the other things that we talked about. Jeff, I want to thank you again. Be sure you all, of course, head on out over to 2719hyperion.blogspot.com to read Jeff's blog. I think it is definitely uh, the premier Disney blog out there. Jeff, thank you again so much for kind of... Uh, getting all geeky and sentimental once again then once again this week thanks Lou and uh, if we can leave everybody with nothing more than just having the song merrily 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 just stuck in their heads for the next few hours I'll thanks see a lot you got it we're always in no hurry we have no time to store we've got to be there we've got to be there where we can we go
merrily, 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 merrily on our way. And we may be going to Delta, to Lancashire, to Worcestershire. We're not so sure, but what do we care? We're only sure we've got to be there. We're merrily on our way to Hello there, WDW Radio Show listeners. It is Eric Hollister from Geomouse.com, and it is time to update everybody on challenge number two. Lou's actually out running about three or four miles prepping for his own half marathon in January, and we know that many of you will be joining him. So he's asked me to go ahead and come on and announce the winner and announce the name of mile marker number two. So we want to thank everybody again for all their submissions. Uh, As with any contest, there can only be one winner. What we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and post all of the correct answers for Jonathan Dichter's challenge last week on geomouse.com. Lou will also provide a link to that in the show notes so everybody can go on and check even to see if they got their uh, answers correct. Uh, But we pulled together all correct answers once again Drew a name, and the winner for mile marker number two is Eric Solon. And Eric has chosen mile marker number two to be known as Expedition Eric Summit. That's the Expedition Eric Summit. So again, congratulations to Eric for winning challenge number two. The prize package that he will be receiving consists of Walt Disney World Trivia Books, Volumes 1 and 2, signed by Lou Mangiello a Disney World Trivia t-shirt, all of Walt Disney World on DVD, both a DisneyWorldTrivia.com trading pin and lanyard, a Remy and Linguini Ratatouille plush figures from the movie Ratatouille, and finally the Certificate of Dedication for Mile Marker Number 2, which will forever be known as Expedition Eric Summit for the 2008 Half Marathon. Eric's name will also be included in the final grand prize drawing, which we will go ahead and draw after the half marathon in January. And finally, Geomouse.com will be donating $100 towards the Disney World Dream Team Project. And if you would like to donate yourself, feel free to go to Geomouse.com or WDWRadio.com and click the firstgiving.com link. So again, congratulations to Eric Sowen, and the mile marker number two is going to be known as the Expedition Eric Summit. Now, there is no challenge for this week, uh, but stay tuned for next week's show. August 5th, we will be doing challenge number three, and it's going to be a little bit easier. It's going to be kind of a different route. We hope everybody will have fun with it. And with that, we're going to send it back to Lou and the WDW Radio Show. Another one of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures is one that isn't just a hidden treasure in and of itself, but really serves to introduce you to even more of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures, much like I try and do here on the show. And this hidden treasure was suggested to me by another friend of the show and longtime Disney podcaster, Eric and Dan of Mouse Guest Weekly. Guys, welcome to the WDW Radio Show. Well, hi, Lou. Thanks for having us. Yo. 
<laughs> it's been a long time coming. I, I was really looking forward to having you guys come on. And uh, I'm happy we're able to talk about this because this hidden treasure is one of my favorites for a lot of reasons. Um, Eric, go ahead. Why don't you tell everybody what, what you suggested. So tell us what this hidden treasure is. Uh, well, basically, I was thinking of experiences you can have that uh, are maybe off the beaten path. Not a lot of people do. And it's the, the tours. And the, the in my opinion, the best of the best tour would be the Keys to the Kingdom at the Magic Kingdom. Uh, it's, what, four and a half, five hours of on stage and behind the scenes all through the Magic Kingdom gives you a great sense of the, the history of the park and uh, some of the work the Imagineers do to really create the illusion uh, and the atmosphere that they do. Yeah, and this really, like I said, is my favorite of all the tours for a number of reasons. I think it's just the right length, like you said, at five, at about four and a half, five hours. It's not really too that too too long, and it takes you to some of those backstage areas that, for a long time, were really previously off limits. You know, places like the Utilidor, and it really does a great job of pointing out all the hidden details and the stories and the meaning behind everything that you see on stage at the Magic Kingdom. Absolutely, yeah. The, the Utilidors, the infamous Utilidors. Uh, it is uh, actually not uh, what you would think, uh, <laughs> not what I thought at, at all. And there's nothing creepy or spooky about it. It's not uh, a freezer where they keep uh, Walt. It's uh, <laughs> we know that's it's in the actually, castle. We already know that's in the castle. So <laughs> there you go. Yes, yeah. So I mean, it, it is like you said. You do see a little bit of backstage, but uh, as we'll we'll talk about, I think it it only uh, gives more. Uh, an enhancement to what you see on stage when you actually can see, you know, kind of behind the curtain. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's give a little bit about some of the facts about the uh, the, the tour itself. It's offered every day, usually three times a day, 8.30, 9, 9.30, stagger it in the morning. Uh, it costs about $60 per person. It also includes lunch. We'll talk about that over at the Columbia Harbor House. And there are uh, discounts available. If you're an AP holder or AAA, you can get 15% uh, if you're a Disney Visa or DVC owner, you can usually get about 20% off of the tours. Actually, I just checked it. I think DVC is down to 15 now. Hmm. So they're, they're starting to nickel and dime us. We don't, we don't quite put enough into the park, I guess. Yeah, I guess not. I... <laughs> but uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the tour itself. You, when, when did you take it? Uh, I'd say it was probably about a year, year and a half ago that we, that we went. Okay. I took it, was, it, it was uh... my, my wife and I. Yeah, I took it pre nine eleven, and and I don't know how much the tour mm. may have changed. Um, I, I take a lot of the tours like the backstage magic pre nine eleven. I know they did change them somewhat, um, but tell us a little bit about what you saw and kind of what the day was like on the tour. Um, well, it was it was pretty interesting. Uh, I don't think a lot has changed because again, we went to Utilidors, we went backstage a couple of times actually. So I don't know what they would have changed. Um, I thought it was kind of nice when, at the very beginning. I'm not sure they had this when you you went or not, but they, they gave everyone a set of wireless earphones, and the our tour leader actually wore a microphone that we could pick up, um, so he didn't have to scream, and we we could all have no trouble hearing him if we were we had a pretty large group, so even if we were good 20 30 feet away, we could still hear what he was talking about, and not have to to strain. Um, so I thought that was actually pretty interesting. That's the only tour I've done that we actually have have done uh, the the wireless earphone devices, um, but we started on Main Street. And he talked a little bit about things that I think us, I, you know, a more advanced Disney fan would know, the Force perspective and things like that. But you know, I don't care how many times you hear about Force, perspe force perspective; it's still interesting to see him pointed out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Then we did, you know, you saw the, point out some of the windows uh, along Main Street. Um, we did a few attractions, and he kind of pointed out some of the storylines of the attractions and some hidden things that the, the average guest may miss. And like I said, a couple couple backstage areas as well. It was it was a it was a really complete experience, I think. Yeah, and you don't see. I mean, you don't really tour the entire park. I know when I went, you did Main Street. You, you met at Main Street. You went through Main Street, um, through Adventureland, the Jungle Cruise, to Pirates. We went through Frontierland to the Haunted Mansion, had lunch at the Columbia Harbor House. Then that's when you started to go into some of the backstage areas behind Main Street, behind Adventureland, um, then to the Utilidors, and then back out to Main Street, uh, really just in time to catch the, the 3 o'clock parade. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds very similar to what we did. Uh, the uh, I mean, the backstage areas were great. Uh, you, I don't know if they took you back behind Splash Mountain, uh, that is probably, I mean, it, it's neat to see backstage, but it's at, at the same time not so nice because I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's where all the trash goes. <laughs> and there's a uh, odor in the air, shall we say, that uh, we didn't want to stick around too much. <laughs> not the smell of pixie dust that you'd really be imagining. <laughs> no, no. Uh, recycled pixie dust. Yeah, it was yeah. not good. <laughs> yeah, but it gives you, it really gives you a sense of the infrastructure that goes on behind uh, behind the magic, really, at the Magic Kingdom. But they also talked about some of the other things, too. They talked about the important things that really are their keys to the kingdom, like safety and courtesy and show and efficiency and how all those things translate from what goes on backstage to what you see as a guest on stage with the cast members. Yeah, absolutely. They, they did a good job of... I think the tour really does a great job of combining the elements. It, it combines the uh, kind of a, what the cast members see and kind of their the, the thinking behind a lot of the setup of the park and it combines a lot of the story of the attractions and the Imagineer's job and then as well as just the infrastructure you know how it all works you know the I don't know again I don't want to I don't know how much we want to give away uh, talking about it but there's the, the underground when you're in the Utilidors you have the underground trash system that uh, was kind of fascinating to me because of the trash is, I mean, when you're on Main Street and throughout the park, trash could be literally rushing, you know, very quickly underneath your feet and you wouldn't even know it. Uh, I thought it was interesting how they, how close you are at times to, to being backstage and kind of having the illusion ruined and yet you would never know it as an average guest in the park. Exactly. And, and you know, while guys like you and I are fascinated about trash in the Magic Kingdom. Yes. The, the, the thing that's great about this, and the reason why it is a hidden treasure, is because it really is for all guests. It, whether you're, you know, you've just been to the Walt Disney World a couple of times, or you've been a gazillion times, and really want to learn more, um, there's so much to see, and there's so much that will interest you. It's not all just minutia and obscure trivia. And the thing that we were talking about offline is that People's, people's concern is always that it's going to spoil the magic for you and you're going to see things that you don't want to see and you shouldn't see and what, and that's not what this tour does if anything I think we're both in agreement it enhances the magic for you oh absolutely I think it's great like you said it's well, as long as any guest as long as you're 16 or over I guess they don't uh, want to take uh, a little one to the Utilidors and have him see a, a character in a state he's not used to seeing the character in. But if you're if you're of age, I, I would recommend it. Whether it's your even your first trip to Disney, uh, to Walt Disney World, because it, it really enhances your appreciation of, of the work they do to create that environment for all the guests. 
And uh, I had those same concerns. I, I, I put off going on it because I said, well, if I see backstage, then is that all I'll see every time I pass that particular area? Is, you know, will it ruin the, the magic? And I can tell you, it completely does not. It, it, it only makes it better. And you only get that appreciation of, of what they do uh, all the more after taking the tour. Absolutely. And if you do have, you know, if you are maybe, you know, your first or second time there and you're maybe not ready to, to see all this yet, or you do have younger kids that you want to take with you, they do offer other tours as well. They offer something called the Family Magic Experience. That's a great kind of primer for first timers or people with kids. Um, they don't really take you to some of the backstage area. They take you really more things on stage. That's only two hours. That's $25 a person. Or if you really want to you know, kick it up to the super uber geekdom. They offer something that I really, really like called the Backstage Magic Tour, and that's a seven and a half hour tour. It's $199, but that's really where you get to see, you know, everything. And you also go to Epcot and you go to the Disney MGM Studios, and, and that's when you really want to kind of take it to the next level. But I think the, uh, I think the Keys to the Kingdom Tour just has everything going for it. It's the, it's a perfect length you get to see a lot on stage you get to see a lot off stage and really get an appreciation for for how they create the magic that they do absolutely i'd also one other tour i would recommend if you're not quite ready to go into utilidors but maybe you want to see something a little bit i don't know more adult oriented than you know the, the family magic tour is the uh, the magic behind our steam trains tour um that's a good one to give you an overview of walt and his creation of the park and his entire life and you see a little bit of backstage but really not enough to kind of blow the illusion so if you're concerned about that maybe do one of those other tours as a stepping stone up but yeah by, you're absolutely right the keys to the kingdom is, is definitely i think the best because it, again it's not too long it's it gives you a lot of information and i definitely felt it was worth it uh, uh like i said lunch is included you also get a little uh pin keys to the kingdom pin yeah, there's about 20 different tours you can take uh, through all the theme parks, really, except for, for Disney and Gym Studios. It doesn't have a, uh, a theme park-specific tour. I'll put some links up in the show notes where you can find out more information about it. Um, Eric and Dan from Mouse Guest Weekly, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you for introducing us to this um, great hidden treasure. But before I let you guys go, I know that you guys have a lot of good things going on over there. You're, you're, you've just hit your two-year anniversary, and you just are you're taking Mouse Guest the website to the next level. Tell us a little about what you guys have going on. Yeah, we've uh, officially taken mouseguest.com live. It's uh, accepting uh, subscriptions for uh, memberships now where you can actually uh, ride the attractions virtually and as well as rate them. So it's pretty exciting. It's taking uh, the, the whole idea of the virtual uh, experience of uh, Disney parks to the next level. Yeah, I had a chance to take a look at it and it's very, very cool. I, I like what you guys did because there's video and there's pictures and you can rate it and, and there's all kinds of cool interactive things that you have going on there um, at the site yep, and we're, we're adding more as we speak uh, we're hoping to actually have some uh, special events such as the uh, uh, fireworks and the parades added soon so you'll, you'll be able to enjoy those uh, right around the time that they usually happen in real life as well as uh, some uh, autograph collecting from the characters and uh, pin trading which should be very exciting wow very cool very, very cool. And you guys know I'm a big fan. You still have your Atmospheres DVDs or kind of, I call them like the, the virtual fireplace DVDs where you have the different atmospheric <laughs> loops of, of all the theme parks. And again, I want to put links up in the show notes over to your website where people can find out more. Be sure you check out their podcast. It's mouseguest.com. It's a uh, it's a great weekly show. They cover all things Disney, a lot of, anima a lot of animation, a lot of theme parks. So uh, again, guys, I really appreciate you coming on. 
Thank you. It was our pleasure. Thanks, Lou. I've spoken a number of times on the show about the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project, which is a fundraising effort that I started some time ago when I first uh, introduced my first book. And it was an effort that I, that I wanted to do to, in order to help send some seriously ill children to Walt Disney World. And what started out as a very, very small idea really kind of blossomed into a collective effort that has um, worked with the Starlight Starbright Foundation in the past, and we've sent three children to Walt Disney World. We're currently raising funds to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Um, in just over a month, uh, in this past month, we raised more than $10,000, including $9,000 at Fred Block's Magic Meat auction, thanks to all the efforts uh, of all the people who were involved, from the auction people and the volunteers and everybody that donated. But but something else happened along the way, and something I never anticipated, and that was that other people became motivated to do what they could do in order to help. And again, this is so much a part of, as Mike Scopa said during Magic Meets, why we do what we do. And you already know of Jonathan Dichter and his efforts to lose weight and train for the 2009 marathon and also help money to raise um, to, to benefit the Disney World Dis- Trivia Dream Team Project. Uh, but I want to introduce you this week to somebody else. And this is a friend that I met last year at MouseFest who's also doing something amazing, not only for himself, but for others as well. So I want you to meet Byron Hall. Byron, welcome to the show. Hey, Lou. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And I just wanted you to be able to, to share just for a minute some of the things that you're doing, um, like I said, not only for yourself, but but for, for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Tell us what, what you're doing and how some people can actually go and help you. Well, following, I guess the easy way to describe what I'm doing is following Jonathan Dichter's lead. Um, you know, looking forward to you know, things like the 2009 uh, Disney World Half Marathon. Um, you know, like Jonathan... You know, at 340 pounds, you're not going to be running a half marathon anytime soon. Um, but the thought came, you know, Jonathan's doing what he's doing. You know, why can't I do the same thing? And and so that's where the whole thing started. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I, I worked for a company that, you know, believes in what I'm doing. Um, so much so that they started their own um, foundation last year, and it's through that foundation that we are going to be um, directly adopting the wish of, of children through Make-A-Wish um, and children that want to go to Disney World. So just like what Jonathan's doing, people can actually go to your site, they can sponsor your weight loss, I guess, you know, pound for pound, and all that money will go to benefit the uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Georgia and Alabama, right? That's correct. Uh, if you go to uh, uh, fatdisneygeek.com, and uh, you can spell it any way you want to, <laughs> um, but the, the real spelling is P-H-A-T. Um, go there. Um, you'll find links to uh, my blog where I'm uh, journaling what I'm doing throughout this whole process. There's a link to find out more information about who all is involved and uh, how the sponsorship program will work. And um, more importantly, there's a link there to uh, sign up to sponsor me. And uh, and you've been doing this just for a little bit of while. Tell us how you're doing so far, not only with your weight loss, but so far with the money that you've raised, because it's pretty amazing on, on both aspects. 
Well, I started the actual weight loss um, probably back around uh, February. And through the beginning of July, um, I lost 20 pounds. And right now, um, hopefully Monday morning being the end of uh, July, I'll be at about 12 pounds for the month of July. So I'm hoping I'll be at about 32 total. And uh, I guess to give you an idea as to you know, how things are going, the sponsorship program kicked off on July the 19th and to date I have uh, 15 total uh, individual sponsors. Of those sponsors, one of the, the neatest things that, that's happening is the company I work for, the Tritium Corporation, has issued a challenge to its employees that it will match every dollar given by its employees. And so far, of those 15 employees, for instance, I have 10 um, or 15 sponsors. I have 10 employees that have totaled $20 per pound. You add the match on top of that is uh, another 20. I have five sponsors so far that are non-Tritium employees, and that's $12.50 a pound. And on top of that, Tritium has uh, generously agreed to sponsor me uh, in addition to the match. And when you add everything up, um, I now have a total of $102.50 per pound uh, wow. in total sponsorships. And uh, so when you combine the weight I've already lost, you know, hopefully month by Monday morning, that comes to about $3,280 in uh, promised uh, donations. That, that's amazing. And again, you've just, you've been doing this for just, you know, kind of over a week and that's where you are. So I can only see... Uh, amazing things happening as it goes on. Uh, I'm really happy for you, what you're doing for yourself and for your own health. Uh, I'm looking forward. If I survive the 2008 half marathon, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the 2009 <laughs> half marathon. Um, and, you know, who only knows the sky's the limit as to what you're going to be able to do. And you really are helping make magic for people that really need it. And for more information, I'm going to put these links up in the show notes. You can go to Fat Disney Geek. That's P H A T DisneyGeek.com for more information about what Byron's doing. If you want to sponsor him or just kind of post on his blog and give him uh, give him a little extra support, it's always appreciated. Byron, keep in touch with us. Um, you know, Let us know how you're doing along the way, and uh, congratulations again for, for what you're doing for yourself and for the kids. Uh, thank you very much, Lou. It's an honor to be here. And, you know, Lou, the, uh, the, the sponsorships are, are great, and that's the ultimate goal of, of raising money. Um, that will ultimately go to you know making a dream come true um but for me personally just the just for people to go to the site to read the blog to post comments on the blog and to use the contact me link that's on there to send me emails just to know even if you're not sponsoring just to know that you're out there um following me you know watching me um it it means a great deal to me and if you're not sponsoring me just go ahead and send me an email and just let me know that you're out there you got it buddy well you know that we're all behind you and keep up the great work and, and keep in touch and, and i'll talk to you soon will do thanks Luke. we put our faith and hope on a shoe Wish 
I know the show is running a little long this week, but I did want to get to a couple of your emails before we ended the show. First one says, hey, Lou, I've got a question for you. My parents and I are having a friendly argument over the original name of Disney's Old Key West Resort. My mother says the original name of the resort was Conk Flats. I told her I disagreed because I thought that was the name of the general store. I also said I thought the original name for the resort was Disney's The Vacation Club, and my father also agrees with me on this. Could you please email me with an answer as soon as you can? I have both of your books and my fellow Disney lover. I listen to the podcast every week and love the Hidden Treasure segment and plan on taking some of your advice. I've been going to Disney World since I was two and a half years old, and I've gone for the last at least two times a year since then for the past few years. Thanks. That's from Jennifer in Carney, New Jersey, who's Goofy Girl 11,000 on the forums. Uh, Jennifer, you are right. The old Key West was originally called the Disney Vacation Club Resort. That name was then changed to the Disney Vacation Club at Walt Disney World Resort in 1995 because that's when the Vero Beach Resort opened. Uh, in 1996, it finally became Old Key West. That was around the same time that another DVC resort opened on property, and that was the Boardwalk Villas. Next email says, Hey, Lou, I thought I would submit this question to you because you know everything about Disney. No, but thank you. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of MGM and you, of course. In front of the villain's shop is an old-style red car, which is now missing. And across the street is a gold car. I was wondering if you knew where the red car went and if it will be returning. If you know if there's a story behind these two cars and then she's attached photos. That's from Marianne from, I'm sorry, Maureen from Massachusetts. Maureen, thanks for the emails. Um, what you're talking about is on Sunset Boulevard, right in front of the villain's uh, shop. There used to be an old-style red car from the 30s or 40s, which recently was removed for some reason and is no longer there. Across the street on the sidewalk is a gold Cadillac, which is still there. And if you look real close, you can find a parking ticket on it. Uh, my only assumption is that they took the car off the street just to allow for more room not only for guests, but for the Streetmosphere characters to perform, um, especially since the gold Cadillac on, that's on the sidewalk is still there. I'll try and post some pictures up in the show notes. Um, as far as a story, I have not been able to find one as yet. I've been taking pictures like crazy, and uh, I'm going to keep looking, believe me. Next email says, Lou, I have to first say that I'm a huge fan of your show. I travel around a lot, so I use your podcast to help pass the time during my long drives. So it should be music to your ears to hear the longer the better when it comes to the length of your podcast. Haha, Matt Hotchberg. All right, I threw that part in. I did have a two-part question for you. You mentioned that at some point there were kiosks placed throughout the parks that allowed visitors to make a disc of various narrations and theme songs for some of the attractions. I grew up going to the parks, and these songs offer a bit of nostalgia that I would love to have in my collection. Is it still possible to have these discs made? And if not, where can I find some of the harder-to-find songs and narrations? Some of the Jack Wagner narrations come to mind, as well as the song featured in Space Mountain. I can't remember the name of the song, but it seems that the latter part of the 80s and the early part of the 90s, during the post-show of Space Mountain, there were screens placed around the moving platform that showed an astronaut and played a song. If you could point me in the right direction, I would certainly appreciate it. Keep up the good work, and that came from Richard Holland. Richard, um, I'm sad to say that what you were talking about was the Wonderland music system, and those kiosks unfortunately disappeared back in 2006, and they were great because they were on de- a CD on-demand kiosk, which basically lets you go and purchase out-of-print titles that you could burn onto a CD for around $16, and they were located over at the Main Street Cinema, which is home to the VMK now, over at the Magic Kingdom, and Once Upon a Toy in downtown Disney. Um, and like I said, unfortunately, they have been discontinued since the fall of last year. Uh, as far as trying to find some of the songs that you are making reference to, unless these things are going to be made available right now through someplace like iTunes, there really isn't any place 
legally that you can find them online. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think I see those Wonderland kiosks coming back anytime soon. But like you, I would love to find a lot of those rare audio tracks. and I'd love to be able to put together a CD of songs and narrations from attractions that I love and that I remember uh, from the 80s and 90s as well. Next email says, First Lou, first of all, love the show, and you'll have to thank John Crigliano from Mouse Times for that. Anywho, I'm going to be going to Walt Disney World for the second time in my life next week, and I'm going to be doing a lot more. We made a reservation at Chef Mickey's, and right after we're go- after that, we're going over to the Magic Kingdom. Is it better to park at the Transportation and Ticket Center and take the Express Monorail to the Contemporary, or park in its parking lot? Another thing I want to go to is the Adventures Club. I know what it is and what it's all about, but I've never been... Any basics I should know, cost, opening, etc. Thanks again, and keep up the good work. Uh, thank you for the email. I would actually take advantage of being able to park over at the Contemporary. When you go to uh, to go there for, for Chef Mickey's, they're actually going to have a clipboard on, to confirm that you're actually on the list. Uh, now, technically, the parking pass that they're going to give you is only good for a few hours, um, but I've never seen them actually tow a car. If you want to kind of play by the book, then yes, you should go and move your car over to the Transportation and Ticket Center. Um, if you want to chance it, you can stay there. You can actually walk right over to the Magic Kingdom. I actually, um, I like doing that, especially at night. You don't have to wait for a monorail. You don't have to wait for a ferry boat. You can take a nice leisurely stroll, um, you know, right over to the Contemporary. As far as the Adventures Club, if you check on some of our uh, show notes from earlier shows, we did do um, some discussions about the Adventures Club. I also did a, a real in-depth discussion with Brian Ripper over at the All About the Mouse podcast a few weeks ago. If you go over and check that out, it'll tell you pretty much everything that you want to know and probably things you didn't want to know all about the Adventures Club. Our next email reads, Lou, I had a question about tipping housekeeping. I wanted to know how you make notice for housekeeping that you left them a tip. I don't think that you automatic- that they automatically know that it's for them if you leave some money behind. I'm from the Netherlands, and we don't tip anybody. I know in the USA, a 15% tip is considered normal, but how do you leave it behind for housekeeping? I just want you to know that I love your podcast. I download it every week, and I'm sorry to miss out on them while I make my trip with my parents to the Disney parks. Lots of love from Daisy in the Netherlands. Daisy, thank you very much. Hope you're having a good time on your trip to Disney World. Uh, and I understand what you mean about, about leaving tips from housekeeping and how much did you leave and how do you leave it for them. What I like to do normally is I leave an envelope and I mark it mousekeeping uh, and they know it's for them. I usually leave it on the table or on the bed so it's very prominent. Uh, And what I do too, and this is something we talked about on an earlier show, is I make sure I leave a tip every day because you don't know if the person that cleans your tip on Tuesday is going to be the same person that leaves your tip, uh, I'm sorry, that, that cleans your room at the end of your stay, maybe on Friday and Saturday. So what I'll do is I'll put, you know, a, a certain dollar amount in an envelope every day, leave it for them uh, after I leave my room in the morning and they come in to clean. Now, as far as how much to tip, um, you know, I really can't tell you that's really a personal choice. You can leave as much as you like. Um, you know, maybe you want to take into consideration maybe the resort you're staying at or the number of people in the room, maybe how messy you are. Um, but again, you know, uh, you don't necessarily base, you know, 15% on the amount that you should leave. That, that's something you have to just kind of choose for yourself. Our next email comes from Shane from Snellville, Georgia, who writes, Hello, Mr. Mangello. First of all, I'm a listener of WDW Today. Anyway, so I must start off by saying, Oh, Lou, oh, Lou, etc. That being said, here's my question. I originally personally emailed Mr. Studios himself, but he never got back to me. So I'm hoping I can get your answer really soon and say, look how fast Lou answered my question. Insert editorial comment here. I received this email at 7.47 p.m. the night before the show went live. 
Anyway, I was on the great movie ride and I became confused because Muggsy did not come out and kidnap the whole ride vehicle during the gangster scene. But I wasn't alarmed for long because in the next scene, a cowboy was our kidnapper in the western scene. My question is, why was it a cowboy instead of Muggsy? Is there something that they do when the gangster scene is malfunctioning? Or perhaps is it to add variety to the attraction so they don't have the same scene twice? What do you know or think? Thanks, Shane. Shane, thank you. And I am purposely answering your email very, very quickly. Um, And there's actually two scenes. And you're right. It is to give you some variety in the attraction. There is both a cowboy scene and the gangster scene. And it really is determined by what car you ride in when you board the attraction. If you're in the front car, you're going to make your stop in the western scene and get the cowboy cast member. If you're in the back car or the second car, you're going to stop in the gangster scene and you're going to get Muggsy who's going to leave your vehicle and then come back in. Um, sometimes, especially if the ride is not really all that uh, busy, you may they may only be running the second car and so you'll always get the gangster, but that's not always the case. Um, either way, whatever one you know hijacks your car, eventually gets switched back to your original guide um, in the Indiana Jones scene. When, uh, well, I'm not going to spoil it for you. But anyway, so there you go. Yes, there are two ride scenes. Uh, is the gangster scene and the western scene. Shane, I hope that uh, helps you out. And uh, if you have any questions that you need answered quickly, feel free to email me first. All right, one more quick last email. And this one says, Lou, I'm a little late in asking this question, but I just realized yesterday that I needed to rearrange our dining plans for January and we're almost at 180 days out. I think our best bet is to catch dinner our first night in downtown Disney. Where do you recommend? I really trust your opinion and thought you were the perfect person to ask. What about places like Raglan Road? Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks so much. And that comes from Sue in Fairfax, Virginia. Sue, uh, downtown Disney, boy, there there are so many good places to choose from. Um, I'm going to have a tough time recommending one over the others. I really like Wolfgang's Pucks. I think um, House of Blues is a very, very unique dining experience because you've got some very... um, cool food choices you have a great atmosphere you've got uh, music at night fulton's crab house has a really nice selection of seafood um i think raglan road is okay i don't think it's my first choice as far as food if you're going to go there and you want to spend the night uh, listening to music and maybe having a few drinks that might be a good choice but that's probably not my first choice food wise but i think if i had to pick one if you want the whole food and drink and entertainment experience um, I would probably go with House of Blues. Like I said, you have some really unique uh, dining selections there that you're not going to find anywhere else on property. The environment is is a lot of fun. If you're going uh, just for a, a best food, probably in downtown Disney, uh, I'd likely go with, with Pucks. And if you sit downstairs, you get a nice... Uh, Seat by the window, you get a great view uh, at, at dusk of the uh, of the lake and of downtown Disney, and uh, I think the food there is absolutely exceptional. So I think you, you won't be disappointed with any place that you choose. And uh, that's going to do it for email this week. Again, the show's running long. Shocker of all shockers. But if you have an email that you want me to answer on the show, send it to lou at wdwradio.com, or if you want, you can even call it in as a voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Thank you once again for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I, of course, want to thank Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com, as well as my other guests, Steve Barrett from hiddenmickeysguide.com, Eric and Dan from Mouse Guest Weekly, Byron Hall from fatdisneygeek.com, and Eric Hollister from geomouse.com. 
Don't forget to visit our show notes page at wdwradio.com for more information, links, and photos, as well as links to previous episodes of the show and our merchandise shop. I want to take a quick second to thank everyone again who's donated their time, efforts, merchandise, and financial contributions to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team. We raised $9,000 at this year's Magic Meet auction, and in just under one month, we are at 90% of our first goal of $12,000, which is going to be enough to grant the wishes of two children through the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. For more information or to donate, visit the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team project page or the WDWRadio.com homepage for the link to the secure First Giving website. If you're thinking about planning your next Disney World vacation or Disney Cruise Line trip, be sure you head on over to our friends at The Magic for Less Travel for a free, no-obligation quote. Their services are completely free to you, and they have a commitment to not only giving you the best possible prices and discounts, but outstanding personal service. If you visit the WDWRadio.com homepage, you'll find a link over to The Magic for Less Travel. On upcoming shows, we're going to cover more of the next Seven Wonders series, in a little bit of a different format, we're going to do some Disney scene investigations, have plenty of vacation planning information with the help of some more special guests, a few new segments, more contests, your email, and so much more. As always, I want the show to continue to remain interactive, so email me with any questions, comments, or suggestions you have to lou at wdwradio.com. You can call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW, and of course, come and visit our fun and friendly forums over at disneyworldtrivia.com. Again, please help spread the word, and if you are so inclined, I'd ask you to please vote daily at podcastawards.com for the WDW Radio Show in the travel category. I want to thank you for tuning in once again this week. I really appreciate you coming back, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Have a fantastic week. See ya!